Romans 12, just to set the stage a little bit, it's, a, it's always a little difficult just to, just to speak on one chapter because you're entering into a section of Scripture where a lot has preceded it, a lot has gone before. Um, so I, I'd encourage you as we walk through this over the next four weeks, read the chapters that have gone before. Um, basically what, uh, and, and this is a real, you know, kind of nutshell type of summary, but for the first 11 chapters, Paul has um, taught what the, and, and just kind of unfolded what are the primary doctrines of our salvation. Uh, in short, that we are made right before God, that, that, that idea of being justified before God. We're made right before him, we're reconciled to him, found without fault, without blemish, by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Jesus Christ alone. So if you were to kind of summarize, I mean, that's not to discourage you to look at Romans, but if you were to summarize what he unfolds in those first 11 chapters, it's that, that you're made right before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, the, so this chapter 12 is kind of uh, the beginning of Paul, and, and really it goes on for really through most of the end of the, the letter, um, through the 16th chapter, is the beginning of Paul kind of saying, how then shall we live, right? That, that famous question that we say, okay, so now I got the doctrine, how then shall we live? How, how should these glorious realities impact life on the ground? So the question we'll be asking through this series is simply this, what should be different about my life if I'm a follower of Jesus? Should it be different? Is Christianity just another organization that maybe I join and I occasionally attend meetings? Is Christianity primarily about what comes after this life? We're just kind of waiting for that. Or maybe Christianity is just one of many self-help options out there. The teaching of the scriptures and, and the teaching of the Apostle Paul... I think says nothing less than this, that everything about our lives should change as a follower of Jesus. That word everything is overused a lot. You, you know, you go up to, there's an interview after the Super Bowl and you go up to one of the players, what does it mean to you that you won the Super Bowl? And they go, it means everything. I'm always like, really? Everything? What does it mean to you that you, you know, that you just succeeded in this thing or that thing? Or what does it mean to you that, you know, you, you had a triple-double? It means everything. Really? Well, I think here is a place that everything is appropriate. That for the follower of Jesus, everything should change. How I think, how I view the world, how I respond to God, how I respond to myself how I respond to what I'm included in, in the new Christian community, how I respond to my neighbor and my broader community, how I respond even to those who are pitted against me. And through this chapter, we walk through all of those themes. Being reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, should change everything. I'm just going to start with the first two verses that Jed read this morning, I'll read again. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers. So it's saying brothers. It could be, it's, it's not just saying men. It's including, including the brethren. All it's a, it's a letter to the believers in Rome, to Christians, and then to us. In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, or could, could be translated reasonable, act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And again, I think the will in that context is not as we'd often think of it as, what's God's will for my life? Where should I go to college? Who should I marry? What's my next career step? I mean, I think that's all a part of God's broader will. But it's more about... What God says is good, right, just, fair, where he'll lead you, being discerning in your decisions and choices in life. So on your phone, do I have my phone? I don't know. I don't know. On your phone, you likely have a wallpaper, right? What they call a wallpaper. It's, it's, it's a picture on the front. And how many of you change, have changed that wallpaper from the standard wallpaper to something else? Or on your computers, right? So often, uh, what, do we put, what do we put up on that wallpaper typically? What's that? Pictures, Pictures of Motorcycle. family. <laughs> Motorcycle. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's going to hurt my point a little bit. Thanks, Keith. Um, <clears throat> Put a picture of a, fam, a family member, a loved one. I've got a picture of Cheryl and I on the front of my phone. Why do we do that? Maybe, maybe you put a picture of a beautiful landscape. Why? Why do you do that? Okay. So what? To remember? Uh, hopefully Keith's not saying that. To think of often? Good. Good. To remember? To lift your spirits? Maybe sometimes, we, and, and again, not to get overly deep about it, but I wonder if sometimes, like, if it's a picture of a loved one or, or your wife or your husband, you kind of, it's one of those reminders, like, these are the important things in life. You know, this, or even, even just, you know, a beautiful, a beautiful, piece of creation. You say, wow, it's so good to be reminded that God is so big and what God is doing. Um, Paul begins this, uh, this section of scripture with an appeal. And it's, it's, this appeal is grounded in his authority as a, an apostle. He has authority. Um, he, the, the church should be, respect his authority, should continue to respect his authority as an apostle. And he says, therefore, I urge you it's an urgent appeal. It's a plea. But before he specifies his appeal, he frames it with a view, with a wallpaper, if you will, with, with a picture, a perspective. And I believe this perspective is supposed to motivate us. It's supposed to keep reminding us of something. And the view is this, he says, in view of God's mercy... Literally, the, the word mercy there is plural. You could say mercies, in view of God's mercies. This, this idea of all the countless times 
of which God has treated me, not as I deserve, but treated me according to what Jesus Christ has done for me. Amen? In other words, Paul's saying, what I'm about to tell you must be done with God's mercy always in sight. I think it's crucial. It's a crucial reflection for us. Whenever we consider the how then shall we live, right? The, the, the nuts and bolts of, of doctrine, the nuts and bolts of what God calls his people to, how then shall we live? It's essential, essential that we always do so, keeping God's mercy in view. Lest we simply become moralists, legalists, elitists. And I'll assure you, if you do not keep God's mercy and his mercies, his personal mercies in your life in view, when you keep asking that question, how then shall I live? You'll become a Pharisee. It's when we allow God's mercy to be the backdrop of our lives that we learn to humbly live in accordance to it. I need mercy, and I've been given mercy in Jesus. And that mercy is something that's new. What does the scripture say? Every morning. I need it every morning. Change perspective leads to change attitude and change responses. We tend to show mercy in much greater measure when we're aware of how much we need it. Cheryl, we, we've got a, a, our minivan. The key, this, the key, I got the key here. The key, um, it, it, we're having a problem with the locking mechanism or the, or the turning mechanism, whatever the deal is. With the, I'm not a gearhead, so that, that becomes revealed when I talk like this. Um, so it, if I shut the key all the way off and take the key out, actually, if I just shut it all the way off, it doesn't, it locks. It doesn't want to turn again. So I found out it's like a $700 fix, and I'm like, ah, car's got 270,000 miles on it. I'm not sure I want to fix it. So this is what I say to Cheryl every time she gets, takes the car out. Don't take the key out of the car. Don't turn it all the way. Don't do it. Remember the key. You know, it's kind of remember the key. So the other day I get a call. Um, Randy, I'm in Morris. Okay. I took the key out of the ignition. It's, it's terrible. Like she, it's like, she probably, I probably should just fix it, right? People are going to come after me later and say, what's your problem? Spend the money, fix the car. Yeah, right. Now, my tendency would be to, to, to oh, man, what, how could you forget? But what did, how did, why did you do that? Don't I tell you all the time? But, but a handful of days earlier, who took the key out of the car? <laughs> me and spent half an hour trying to get it set again. So because of that, in view of that, the fact that I needed mercy for making the same absent-minded mistake, oh, all of a sudden now I have compassion. All of a sudden I have, I have understanding and calmness. And ah, oh, we made, we've both made the same mistake. In view of my need of mercy, I can show mercy. That's such a small thing. But then I say, how much more, how much more when you consider God who is infinitely holy and perfect, who has never made a mistake, who has never failed, who doesn't even know what it is to do wrong, how much more 
Is it for, for the, the one that has, is so perfect and has shown us mercy? How much more should we live lives of humility? Live lives of love and gratitude and obedience in view of God's mercy? You know, contrary to what some think, it's not guilt. But it's God's mercy. It's God's grace. It's God's love. That is the greatest catalyst for living a holy life. And when someone argues that, no, 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 no. You, you gotta, gotta guilt people into it. I've heard enough about God's love. You know my challenge is, honestly, and gently, hopefully, I think you need to really look again if you understand God's love. Really look again if you understand God's grace. Because there's no greater catalyst to holy living than God's mercy, undeserved, God's grace, undeserved in our life. We must keep it constantly in view, the wallpaper we gaze at many times a day. Paul moves on. He, now he can get to his plea. And, and what he urges us to do at first sounds paradoxical. He urges us to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, my question is here, and I know a picture goes up on it. My question is, what do, you, what do you think of when you hear the word sacrifice? What's that? Give up? Okay. Death. Death. Yeah, really? A sacrifice? When you think about it in context and where the word comes from, it talks about something that would die. Sacrifices die. In the Jewish, in this, and Paul is definitely pointing to this Jewish priestly animal sacrificial system in which animals were, took, uh, took on the sin of the people and would die. And blood would be shed. This was like a pretty picture, okay? Like if you look, like I, I could have put up a lot worse. Like it's not pretty. Sacrifices die. Their blood is shed. And in the Jewish system, their blood was shed to atone for the sins. Very simply, his life for mine. But they'd have to do this over and over and over and over again. And that's why Jesus Christ became the final sacrifice. That's why the Bible calls Jesus the Lamb of God. But sacrifices die. These lambs were to be, as, as he says here in Romans 12, holy and pleasing. They were to be blameless. They were to be without spot or blemish. What's Paul getting at here? If Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin, he's certainly not talking about the idea that we have to atone for our own sins. But I think he's continuing the same theme in view of God's mercy. In view of the reality that Jesus has sacrificed himself for you, you no longer, you don't have to be a dead sacrifice. You now can be a living sacrifice. This is the appropriate response that we would live in an ongoing state of holy surrender to God. And he says that this, this happens in our bodies. Our very flesh and blood experience, our very flesh and blood existence. Sometimes, sometimes if, I, if I can say this, we, we sometimes over-spiritualize our, our Christianity. And, 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 and I say that in this sense, if, if your Christian walk is all about 
what goes on inside, and it has no expression on how it works outside, there's something missing. Is there, is there outward service, outward change, outward duty? We theoretically say, you know, oh, I have to give my heart over to Jesus. This kind of thing that encapsulates and in, in this idea of all of who I am inwardly. And I think that's right. But my body? My body? And we kind of make this disconnect. It's interesting, John Stott wrote, No worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed in our bodies. How are you using your body? Your flesh and blood existence to honor or dishonor God. Your ears, your eyes, your, your mouth, your tongue, your feet, your hands. Romans 6.13 says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. And again, what's the context? He, draw, he draws it here. He says, as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments, not of wickedness, which he said earlier, but of righteousness. Are your ears feeding on gossip? Are your ears feeding on filth? Are your eyes viewing pornography? Are your tongues abusive? slanderous, cutting, putting other people down so you feel better about yourself? Do your feet rush to take you to where you know, you know, you'll get entangled in sin? Or do your ears listen to God? Do your ears listen to the sorrow of the brokenhearted? Do your eyes focus on what is pure? Are your tongues full of praise to God and what is uplifting to your neighbor? Do your hands lift up the downtrodden? Do you serve without boasting or complaint? Would you be willing to go so far that your body would shield the abused? That your feet would carry you only to do what is good? J.I. Packer says that God's ultimate objective is to bring a great host of humankind to a state in which they please him entirely and praise him adequately. A state in which he is all in all to them and he and they rejoice continually in the knowledge of each other's love. I think it can be a tricky ground processing whether my life is pleasing to God. That expression is is hard for us. But the Bible's not afraid to use it. <laughs> and it's hard because those who tend towards pride are tempted to think, well, I'm a steadily moral person. So I must be pretty consistently pleasing to God. I'm just regularly making good choices. I'm a good guy. I'm a good lady. And those who are prone towards self-deprecation are tempted to think, oh, man, I know myself. Oh, man, I know how often I fail. Oh, man, I know my motivations. I know, I, I know what a mess I am. God must never be pleased with me. 
And, and really, if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of fall in a weird mix of both of them, don't we? And really, neither of those are healthy responses to this concept of pleasing God. Chip Ingram, as he writes on, uh, he did a great study of Romans 12. He says, Romans 12 is not a try-hard moral code to live up to, but a faith response to what God has already done for us. So the question of pleasing God really isn't one just of moral perfection, but am I learning to live in a new rhythm of life that surrenders to God, that offers up my very existence to God, walking in faith, walking in gratitude, walking in love. And if you're doing that, that will lead you to obedience. Next, Paul unites the body, this concept of body and spirit. He says, because as we surrender our flesh and blood existence to God, making these daily choices that create this new holy rhythm, and again, holy, that idea of being set apart for God, this new rhythm of life, it becomes a perpetual spiritual act of worship. And, and the, the biblical concept of worship is that, is that idea of bowing down before God, adoring him, honoring him, praising him, surrendering to him, yielding to him. So beyond this, you know, the, our corporate time on a Sunday morning to sing and to sing songs to God and to pray together, beyond hopefully your private times to do that with God, our everyday moments, our everyday decisions, our everyday attitudes are to be a steady stream a lifestyle of worship to God, bowing down, honoring, adoring, praising. When you pick up the kids at school, when your neighbor who talks a lot bends your ear, when you score the winning goal in the soccer game, when you feel you're underappreciated at work, when you're tempted to say what you know you shouldn't say, will I worship God in this moment? Will I worship God in those micro decisions of every day? Will I offer my whole life, my body, spirit, mind, we'll get into, as a spiritual act of worship, perpetually bowing down to God? The word spiritual here can also translate reasonable or rational. This idea that it's the most sensible thing I could ever do. A first century philosopher once wrote, if I were a nightingale, I would do, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. And if I were a swan, what is proper to a swan? In fact, I am a, and I'll say this wrong, logikos, and that's the Greek word here, this idea of a rational being. So I must praise God. It's the most reasonable thing I could do. And Paul goes on to tell us that we, we basically have two options before us as he's setting the stage for kind of the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts work that will come over these next few weeks in Romans 12. He says we basically have two choices. We either conform or we transform. The Phillips translation reads, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But let God remold your minds from within. To conform is to be made similar. To, make, to be made in the same mold or shape. To comply. 
to the norm or an accepted standard. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. What is he talking? What are some patterns he thinks he's talking about? I'll, I'll ask you. What, what are some patterns of the world? You conform. This is what you do. This is the shape. This is the mold. What are some patterns? Consumerism. Great. Great. Me first mentality. What's that? Okay. Yeah. Goes along with what Mel's saying. Yeah, you got to do what's right for you. I can do it myself. Very good. Just do it. Now, what do you mean by that? Just kind of like go by your instincts? Just, yeah, okay. Good. There's a lot of them, right? I mean, we can go. Anything else? Come on, what comes to mind? Don't be scared. If it works for you. Traditions of man. You're only beautiful if. This is where you find value. I mean, it's all kinds of stuff, right? There's a system, there, there, there's, there's a way, Scripture says, that seems right, seems right, absolutely, this is right, to the mind that is not walking with God, that's separate from God, on how to deal with all these things, how to deal with your sexuality, how to deal with your ethics, your finances, your priorities, power, status, pride, parenting, relationships, speech, work, love, hurts. Offenses, right? We can just keep going on and on. There's a way that seems right to the mind separated from God, but the Bible consistently says don't trust it. Don't follow it. Don't be molded by it. Don't conform, but instead transform. Transformation is to undergo a total change. It's, it's the Greek word here is the word where we get our word metamorphosis. That's why I got the little butterfly up there. Metamorphosis, a complete change from one thing to another. Transformation, instead of just kind of going with the flow or going with my gut instinct or, you know, whatever seems to be culturally ethical at the time, right? So transformation instead of that takes this cooperation with the Spirit of God, the same Spirit of God that was at work in the Old Testament and the New Testament now poured out on the church is the cooperation with the Spirit of God within me. It must be cooperation. If you're not transforming, you're conforming. And Paul just lays it out. It's two roads. You're either going to conform or you're going to transform. Again, John Stott says, in spite of our newness in Christ, that's your position. When you come to Christ by faith, you are new. You're a new creation. He makes you new. That's your position before him. But he says, in spite of our new newness in Christ, dead to sin but alive to God, holiness is neither automatic or inevitable. Because you have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God within you. He says, be transformed. Be a part of this process. This is what God wants to do. To change you from what you were. Where does it begin? We've learned that our bodies are to be given to God as a sacrifice. That our spirits are to be given to God in worship. And here Paul talks about our minds being given to God for renewal. And again, let me say, this isn't theoretical. This isn't a metaphor. This is literal. Our minds need an overhaul. 
God's Holy Spirit looking to change how we think and how we perceive and how we process. How should I act when that person is is hating on me? How should I act when my daughter rebels against me? How should I act when when God seems to leave me out in limbo and I'm crying out to him like, I don't know how to process life sometimes. How should I act? What should I do? Your mind needs an overhaul. The Spirit wants you to say, wants to say, do this dance with me, and I will teach you how to think and perceive and see and respond as I do. Surrendering all of our existence to God in worship, meditating on his thoughts and his word, on his be- the things that he calls beautiful and good. I love Philippians, right? Philippians 4.8. Uh, at the end of Philippians, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. Just think about those words. What a great collection of words. Whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Dwell on them. Meditate on them. Let it change your mind. By communing with God in prayer, by being a disciple, by reading and listening and meditating on his word, by by hearing sound preaching, if I could say that. And I'm, I'm not boasting in that. I just think it's part of the process. By sharing life with a community that'll keep you accountable. So much so that there's a few that really know you so deeply that they could say, wait a minute. What's going on there? And you know they love you, but they're going to challenge you. You sure that thinking is spirit thinking or is that flesh thinking, world thinking? Read good Christian books. Challenge your mind. Let the spirit renew you. Your mind needs a spirit of God overhaul. What are you allowing to shape your mind? The wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God? You're just attempting to change your behavior without a change of heart, without a change of mind. I'll warn you, you're not going to do yourself or anybody else any good. And the result of this, discernment. The ability to better perceive. And I think that's a process. It's not like, all of a sudden I got it. I got you want to know what God wants? I'll tell you because I, you know, I've been, no, it's this process. Now I can better perceive as I walk with the spirit. I walk away from him. I'm probably seeing all the more dimly. I'm walking with him. All right, I'm perceiving better. I'm understanding better what God calls good, right, just, and fair. And that Holy Spirit change. With God's mercy for you always in view. Offer all of yourself to God. That's true worship. Stop fitting into what the world system says is good, says is right, says is beautiful, and start undergoing that Holy Spirit change in how you think, and then go and do accordingly. I just want to wrap up, and I'll close with this, and I can invite the team up for the last song. Romans 12, 1 and 2 from the message. It's just another way to hear these words. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life. 
You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God will bring the best out of you, developing well-formed maturity in you. And that's our prayer. Amen.